Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. When I was in a tough corporate job, I had what felt like the tiniest smattering of friends at that company. They were like a lifeline, confirming my worth, validating my experience, and encouraging me to be my boss bitch self, or at the very least, fake it till I make it. M was one of those people. She would catch me basically silently crying in the cafe, and just her presence, broad smile, twinkling, understanding eyes, and of course the flower in her hair, would bring me back to earth and immediately shift my mood. She's that ultra-unique combo of positivity plus a degree in psychology and a role in the C-suite. But when M describes herself, it's none of these things. She's an awkward, queer woman of color who survived both a childhood in West Virginia and a career in HR. What is, what's your sign? Gemini. I am the twin. How does that show up for you? That's a great question. <laughs> you know, Geminis get a bad rap for being like two-faced. Aww. Or like, and so there's either two-faced or that they are like, they basically are like Sybil. They have like two crazy different personalities. And what I find is that I have an allergic reaction to two-facedness. And that is because of how I grew up. Mm-hmm. It was survival for me to learn the skill to be able to see if someone was being genuine and authentic, like from a very young age. Uh, so I, I feel like from a personality perspective, that didn't get to take root because it was just, it was a survival technique. Yeah. But it yeah, also yeah. can show up in like adaptability. We're super flexible. So the thing that people can often see for me is that they take my ability to understand where they're coming from. And when I can see somebody on the other side where they're coming from, they feel like I'm not like I'm, I am telling that person what they want to hear, or they think that I'm agreeing with them simply because I can understand. And then if I'm talking right. to somebody else that they feel like is on the opposite side of their point yes. of view, and I agree with them, they're like, you know, you need to pick a side. And I'm like, I just do have the capacity to be able to see the whole picture and understand, right. even if I don't, and my understanding does not necessarily mean philosophical agreement or otherwise. It just means understand you their do. viewpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't doesn't mean you agree with it, but you understand. No. I, like I get in trouble with that too because I'll be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then at the end I'll be like, and I don't agree with that. <laughs> and they're like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> You're like, hold up, wait a minute. I actually think it's a beautiful ability. I can't help it if you misinterpret it as agreement or that you need me to like be aggressive in my disagreement. Yeah. I don't need all that. That feels too aggressive. Uh, And then the other part being the two personalities. I do have that, but it isn't like, it isn't the kind where it's like one minute I'm all rainbows and kittens and next minute I've turned into some vicious bitch. It really is the two sides where I am hyper silly goofy couldn't take myself seriously or anything else to save my soul, like a jokester. And then there's the passionate kind of like activist side of me 
Mm-hmm. At, while I'm not necessarily taking myself seriously, I am taking whatever the cause is seriously. And those right. two sides of me, people have a hard time. And I think as I've gotten older, they've, they've, they're more integrated. People experience right. both sides of me more often. But when I was younger, it was more like you only saw kind of the goofy side of me in low-key situations. That's M in a nutshell. But in order to understand her better, we have to take a trip as a biracial child growing up in West Virginia. The story starts with two college kids and a possible miraculous experience. I feel so sorry for him and my mother because she was a freshman. She got knocked up. I mean, I don't think you can get more unlucky because it was on their first time having sex. And I'm just like, you hear those horror stories in health class, but you don't know anybody that that happens to. Who? How? Why? And damn, what did you do for your karma to be that bad? Damn. No, just kidding. You know, neither of them were prepared to be parents. Both of their parents reacted extremely poorly. I mean, it's like 1976, 75, 76. So it's like not the time. Not the time. Not in West. I mean, like lovings, like it was only okay to be interracially married officially or together officially. Like it was 69, wasn't it? 67, 69 when the lovings, the Supreme Court finally was like, this is not illegal. So West Virginia back then was at least 15 years behind everybody else culturally. So when her parents finally found out, they actually drove to Glenville State College and pulled her out of school and brought her back home to Payton City, West Virginia and sequestered her in her room upstairs. So she was only allowed out if company wasn't in, but if anyone rang the doorbell, she had to go hide her. My God. And then they wanted her to put me up for an adoption for adoption. And so they made her go through, she um, already went through the paperwork and that was the plan. My dad's side, they wanted me aborted, but obviously that became too late. So the abortion was the plan. And then I guess in her like last month or so, it just became so unbearable to be at her parents' house that she moved in with her sister, her older sister. And um, as the story goes, she was nearing her, the thing and the, a social worker came by to finish the paperwork for the adoption. And the woman told my mother, she's like, I just, I don't know if anyone has told you this, but you don't have to give this baby up for adoption. Like, I know this is what your parents want. You feel like you have to, but even if you sign this paperwork and it, you get, you don't have to go through with it. Just want you to be able to hear that from somebody. And so that's what ended up happening. My mom decided not to go through with the adoption and giving me up. And apparently when I was still an infant, she went to the state services department to find the woman to thank her because, you know, pre-internet, pre-email mm-hmm. um, and gave them her name. And they said, there's never been anyone that has worked here with that name. We don't know who you're talking about. So my mom thinks it was divine intervention. It feels a little dramatic, but... <laughs> Um, and then, you know, they, they tried to, they get, they got married. It didn't work out. And so she ended up going back to school, took me with her. She has pictures of me in class. So I was raised by, you know, the community there. So she said she has an allergic reaction to inauthenticity that took root at a young age. So what happened in her growing up that gave her an aversion to fakery and an inclination toward inclusion? Well, I think part of it stemmed from the fact that whether it was school, daycare, aftercare, 
I was always the odd ball out, always like the only of something typically related to race. I grew up in rural West Virginia. So the diversity there is, or was then definitely pretty nil, still is uh, outside of the major cities. And the other thing I think was interesting is that, you know, I really am an introvert. People think that I'm like an extrovert uh, because I have like a, a big personality, but like I really am more close knit. And so as a child that showed up where I was very slow to warm up, very shy. And then I had all of this shit. Like I had teachers bullying me. I had other kids bullying me. I was always called out and picked on because I was the most obvious person to call out and pick on. Um, I went through most of my education years up until junior high being pretty socially isolated. Some of my earliest memories when I was going to school would be literally sitting at the lunch table by myself, not having friends to talk to. You didn't Uh, have friends? I didn't have friends. No, I did not have friends. Not in school. In the summers, I had friends, but not in in school uh, or on the bus or anything until about junior high. Um, Why? uh, Because West Virginia then was super racist. Like kids wouldn't talk to you or what? Mm -mm. No, I had a full on I had a full on like Forrest Gump experience every time I would get on the bus. So I lived on a a mountain and you had to come down off of it to get to the bus line. And I remember how anxious I would get as I would near it because I would stand in line. Kids would literally move away from me. And then we were the last stop on the bus line before school. So the bus was already kind of, all the seats were taken. So you'd have to sit with somebody And literally nobody would let me sit with them. So I'm going to the back end of the bus. Invariably, I would end up sitting with some overweight kid who was also at the end of the bus that had no choice but to scoot over and let me because I'm I'm now at the end of the bus and there's nowhere else to sit. Yeah. I was always aware of my otherness and always trying to make myself as small and unnoticeable as possible. And so if you really wanted to be like my friend, I was hyper suspicious. So you had to consistently demonstrate that that's, that you were coming from a very genuine place. And then I also, the other thing that it allowed me to do, and it still carries with me today in all facets of life, but particularly professionally, is it allowed me to be the observer. I basically observed human beings my whole life because either I was being picked on or I was being completely ignored. Mm -hmm. So I observed, I watched how people interacted. I watched what they said versus what they did, how Mm -hmm. they treated other people. And that's why I think I was telling, I don't, was it, were you, I was telling you that like, I have an unconscious bias pro overweight people. Whereas most people, it's a bias the other way where they see them and they, they think certain things. I automatically presume that they've gone through an amount of um, trauma and that as such, they are more in touch with that vulnerable side of them. And they, they, they might act out, but I feel like I can get to the core of who they are and, and see themselves. Yeah, especially when I got into junior high and high school and girls became really catty and observing that behavior. And um, I won't lie, like there were moments where I tried it on and I it didn't work. There's something about my particular makeup that karmically, when I behave in ways that are incongruent with who I am, 
um, that karmic slap back comes back very fast. <laughs> Not like years later. It is like, no, no, we, we need you to know right now that you have stepped, you've stepped, you've made an incorrect step. I remember in junior high being very hurt by a girl at school. The theme I remember being like feeling taken for granted and like a token, like she was only uh-huh. being nice to me because that got her some level of like prestige in school. Like, oh, look yeah. at you being nice to the ratting head biracial girl. Oh, you're such a nice person. There were just a couple things that happened and I was just like, ooh, this doesn't feel good. And I remember sitting in my room writing a novel to her. It was probably eight oh, yeah. pages describing the situations and how it made me feel and blah, 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 blah. And I gave it to her at school one day. And the next thing I knew, I was being called into the counselor's office with wow. her. I know it's pretty intense. Not the first time I've gotten in trouble by school authorities for one thing or another. But this one was touching because the girl was so upset that she had made me feel that way. Not that I said the things or that I wrote her this letter, but like it was a real um, eye-opening moment for her to be like, holy shit, I've had this impact. So it turns out she was a good human being. Yeah. And the counselor was so encouraging that I had gone about it this way. And so that was the first time I realized that there was power in like communicating. And using your words. Yeah, using your words. <laughs> um, flash forward like maybe two years later and there was this other girl and it was a more of a caddy situation and she had done some caddy things. And I decided to fire up those old communication skills. And I wrote another dissertation about X, Y, and Z, except this time it felt a little more sassy and a little more, um, wasn't coming from a, 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 like a vulnerable place in my heart. It was coming from a like self-righteous, uh-huh. dot, 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 dot. So I delivered that, I delivered that letter and promptly ended up back in the counselor's office with her, except this is completely different reaction Uh where basically I got dressed down to my socks about essentially the tone. Was it threatening? No, it wasn't like I was, but I was, I was, was when I really learned that like when I'm mad and it's not coming from a place of my heart, it's coming from a place of wanting to eviscerate the other person that Uh my words cut, (laughs) they they hurt. She, she had done some catty things, but the punishment was not commiserate to the crime. Like the level three, I gave her a level 10 verbal lashing. Right. And that was the point that the counselor was like, boo boo. Like, let's contrast this with two years ago when you did something similar and why that was a different than reaction than this. So that was also a very strong lesson. So very few friends in elementary school. And then though it was rocky, she picked up a couple in middle school and high school. Was it divine intervention that brought her friends? Or her ability to be gracious towards other people's, as she's referred to it, shit? So my mom, she got religious and she went Pentecostal. And I outrageous and is some of my fondest memories but it's absolutely cuckoo for cocoa puffs she started a church out of our house that started as a bible study every friday for two fucking years we had 150 people 50 of which were kids in our home two bedroom ranch house that was not one bathroom meant to accommodate 
that many damn people. And it would go for hours. We were consistently shutting things down after midnight. And I was put in charge of all those hellion ass kids. I remember the neighbor coming up to me one Saturday and he was like, I just want to let you know when y'all were having that Bible study thing, one of those kids came over and was pissing on the side of your house. (laughs) I'm like 11. I'm like, ah, the bathroom was probably taken. I don't know. (laughs) So it was insanity. But I remember many, many a Bible study and many prayer circles, people praying that I would have friends. Like it was actually a topic of prayer. Oh, that's how bad it was. I'm literally <laughs> crying over here. <laughs> so, and I just remember having an album. I'm like, I, they're praying for me to have friends. So I was of two minds. I was like, that's super sweet. I hope God answers my prayers. And then also how pathetic is it that they're having to pray for me to have friends? I literally remember being of two minds of it, mm-hmm. but more the desperate side of me was more like, please God answers one of these mofos prayers because <laughs> I'm bored. okay was there I have like so many questions about no please yeah okay was there um speaking in tongues Mm -hmm. was there laying on of hands Mm -hmm. yes girl was was there any flags and singing and tambourines I need to know like what what flavor we if you can imagine so there's been a lot of stories about Pentecostals and there was about like snakes were involved we were everything up to snakes Snakes were never involved. Girlfriend, I remember being in my living room, being surrounded by about 15 adults, and there were three, three kids of us. Actually, there were five. Three of us were about the same age. The whole session was dedicated to us learning, like being touched by the spirit and being given our tongue. You have 15 adults laying hands on these kids. All of them are speaking in tongues. And they're waiting for each of the kids, like pop, waiting for the first popcorn to pop, where they start speaking their own tongue. And everyone's tongue's, tongue is different. And I am like sweating bullets because nothing is coming to me. I am overstimulated like a motherfucker. I'm like, what is happening to me right now? And so one after another, popcorn, popcorn, popcorn. And I'm like the last. And I... I'm like, they will keep going. This isn't going to end until something comes out of my mouth. So I remember making no, it up. No, making no. You had it. to. You had, had no to. other choice. I had no other choice. No other choice. Oh. None. It was one of the, I mean, there were many uncomfortable, but that one by far was the most uncomfortable experience simply because I knew I was lying. Uh-huh. And it was such a thea- like it was so theatrical. They had a preacher and his family come down from Parkersburg. So it was like about an hour and 15 minute drive every Friday. She would feed them dinner and then Bible study would start promptly at seven. And then over after two years, it turned into a church. And so they moved out and into an actual building. Church services in high school, I finally... We had two a day, two uh, services every Sunday. The morning service started at like ten or ten thirty, and went typically to about one thirty or two. Ooh. And then we would go and we would eat at somebody's house, and we'd be back at five, and that would go until about eight thirty or nine. Oh my god! That was my experience of church. So basically, your Sunday was a wash all day long. 
but I got really good at the tambourine. That was actually one of my favorite things to do. Cause yes. I was like, Ooh, look at that. I can throw a little extra sauce up in here. It's probably, I probably look weird as hell, but, um, it brought me joy. But I remember getting my first friend. She ended up being one of my mom's social work cases. Oh, wow. So her and her sister had been put in foster care because of some neglect from their mom and something really crazy with their, well, they were sexually molested by their, their dad. And they got reunited with their mom and they actually moved into my neighborhood up the street. I think this was like the fourth grade and I will not be able to remember her name off the top of my head, but we couldn't be more different, not for those reasons, but just like... Well, maybe those, those reasons. I mean, I, although I was exposed to some pretty crazy dark stuff, she lived it. I don't know. There was just, it felt like I was leaving my world and going into her world every time we hung out, which actually was cool because I had zero judgment about it. And I was super grateful to be allowed in and I was super respectful of it because I do find that when people of different backgrounds and different situations it makes me cringe when I see people interact with those and they just bring all of their presumption and their privilege into those scenarios and just be, you know, whether it was the fact that like every time I came over, she would want to feed me. She's like, Hey, do you want something to eat? And the thing that she knew how to make was ramen noodles with ketchup. Yes. And so zero like sustenance or nutrients happening here. But instead of being like, yeah, that's disgusting. I'm like, cool, let's have ramen noodles with ketchup. <laughs> that's what we're doing. So it was really cool. But then as we, we grew apart just because I was in the band and I was, you know, I had access to that. And I think that like she was still, you know, that was a very dark thing for her and her sister to go through. But I remember being so happy to just have a friend and someone to hang out with. And then there were, there were pockets, there was junior high, and I, I made some friends, but there always felt like there was a distance, either socioeconomically or racially. Like one of my friends, we were friends because of band, essentially, and I get invited occasionally to like a thing. But I remember her coming up to me and being like, it, I'm so glad I get to be your friend because now we're starting to enter into the 90s. And so like, it started to be cool to be, you know, black or even half at that point. Um, by the time I was in high school fully, it was super cool. Like my, my stock price rose as hip hop culture rose. Right. It was crazy. But she, she literally was like, so my parents are totally okay with me being friends with you. But, you know, they did make it very clear that like, I can't date any black men, but <gasps> you're, but you know, I can have you as a friend just like that. <laughs> yeah just like that just like so was I, there literally like no african-americans in this town you lived in or like what is their percentage mm, could you mm -hmm. at least could you, like find a black friend or oh no in all of my schooling all of it there were six children that were not white oh my god um and they weren't all at the same time yeah, yeah that's yeah. the other thing those six kids over 13 years of schooling, three were black and three were half Asian. That's it. So though she found some friends through church and band and the benefits of hip hop, she was always the oddball out. 
And even in spaces with more diversity, M still didn't quite fit in. The other thing that has to be very stated clearly for the record is that, and I remember using this analogy in high school to describe to people because my experience being in my little bubble and then going to things like band camp during the summer when we would be at like a state park where other school districts were having band camp as well and maybe more predominantly black Mm -hmm. schools. And, you know, we'd be at the, you know, the pool and I would always get called out, you know, because one, I'm shy and two, like I'm hella overwhelmed in big spaces, but I would invariably be like, oh, you think you're, you think you're white. You think you're too good for us. You think something. And I'm just like, nah, what I am is a biracial child raised by a white mom in white rural West Virginia. It's like if you sent a black baby, darkest skin you could find to an Eskimo village in Alaska and that baby grows up, he doesn't consider himself African-American. He is a fucking Eskimo. Okay. (laughs) He's a full on Eskimo. That's all. (laughs) Culturally Eskimo. Totally. Just because you have a certain complexion or skin tone or even cultural heritage doesn't mean that that's your predominant cultural identity. So yeah, there's that. My grandparents, granddaddy and Annie, they were teachers. They would take me for some time every summer and I loved them so much. But at the same time, I was filled with quite a bit of anxiety every time I went to visit because culturally couldn't have been so different. They were at the bottom end of West Virginia, near Virginia. So heavily black communities and um, culturally just like night and day. From the moment I woke up until the evening, I was basically told that everything I did was wrong. You're chewing wrong, your hair looks wrong, you're thinking wrong, like everything. Because I was, I was essentially a white. I, w- I was showing up there with like being encoded by my mom and they, yeah. my cousins would make fun of me. Like I, she'd send me to the neighbors to get my hair plaited and I would just cry because that woman would pull my hair so tight. I'm like, what are, but I would just sit there and grin and bear it because like her kids would go through it like it was ain't nothing, you know, their head was tough at that point. But they were, they were very special uh, in my life. Spending time with her own family shone a spotlight on the ways that she was different. But even in normal daily life, perfect strangers went out of their way to remind her. It, like it was still at that time, people just did not they weren't exposed to it. And I remember graduating and having this elderly person come up to me after graduation and being like, I remember when you were young, I just can't believe you graduated. You've just really changed my mind on like what, you know, people of color can do. (laughs) I was like, I cannot wait to get the fuck out of here. You all are crazy. I cannot believe you just came up and told me that. Like, what the fuck are you doing? But she's like ancient. And in her mind, she's like, she remembered seeing me and she just was like, I can't, I shocked her. I shocked her that I graduated and like, which actually persisted all the way through college. I had a job my senior year waiting tables at my uncle's restaurant. And, um, but it was in Ohio. It's the place where the first train tracks came over from West Virginia to Ohio. And I'm waiting on this table of elderly. It was Sunday. So they were having their, you know, senior brunch and there were four couples. So there were eight of them. And, you know, senior citizens are notoriously horrible tippers. And plus it's impoverished, you know, 
tri-state area. So I'd take care of them, not expecting much. But I remember closing things out, brought their, their, their change back. And one, uh, one of the elderly men grabbed my hand and, and I could feel that there were some dollars in there. Um, and he was like, thank you so much. This is for your kids. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I remember just smiling as big as I could and just saying, thank you. I'm like, cause there's, there's no point in letting this gentleman know that I'm months away from graduate graduating summa cum laude that like, yeah. I don't have any kids. <laughs> there, there's so be- many good intentions wrapped up in racism. So it's like many. Married, or, or is it racism wrapped up in good intentions? I don't know. <laughs> Ooh, that is a very good point, which brings me to the new Hulu, Little Fires Everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is have it you good? watched it? Okay, so it has... No, re- I read the book. Oh, gosh. Okay, well then... The books are always better, but Reese Witherspoon and Carrie yeah. Washington. Love her. I had to pause the first episode no less than six times so that my nerves could calm down because it is so accurately depicting small town America in the Midwest in the 90s and how overt racism was wrapped up in good intentions. They right. are acting it beautifully, but so beautifully, it's so cringy. It's yeah. so painful to watch. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm gonna have to watch it. And actually, the book, both families are white, so the TV show like did it a little different. So I'm interested to see. Oh, girl, prepare to cringe. I mean, like deep down, visceral cringing. M made a life for herself. She graduated, got married, had a son who's now in college, found success in work, and supported her family. But in 2008, everything falls apart. In the way that things have to fall apart, when it's time to live life up to your potential. I lost my job. I separated from Bryce's dad, and I discovered I was queer. Oh my gosh. And I moved across the country to San Francisco. I often joke that like I was actually destined for San Francisco, but the st- I was heavy and the stork couldn't carry me any longer. And so it just <laughs> accidentally dropped me in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. It was like, sorry, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> my bad. Ooh, I got to get to my next delivery. From the moment I was exposed to San Francisco, my first corporate trip, it just felt like home. And then the moment when I, after I moved, because I moved to Pacifica the first time I was here. And then in 2011, I moved to Oakland. And when I moved to the East Bay, I was really like, oh my God, I have found, I found it. This was the place. This was the dot on the map that the stork was supposed to hit. <laughs> yeah. This is it. This is it. Oh my God. I felt like a duck that finally found water. I was like, <sighs> because back then Oakland was vibrant with not just socioeconomically, like you could bump into all walks of life, but the brown queer community was flourishing at that time. Uh So I literally did feel like a duck that had been finally introduced to water. I was like, look at me swimming. This is great. (laughs) Did you have to have any kind of like coming out conversation with your mom? It felt very anticlimactic. The hardest coming out part for me was telling Bryce. That one was like sweaty. And yet he took it like a millennial champ. And I think he was um, 12 
And so he was just like, yeah, mom, whatever makes you happy. That's cool. Yeah. I was like, okay, guess I didn't need to have worried for the like last six months how I was going to have this conversation. And then for my mom, it was, it was actually somewhere near the same time. It was around 2012. And this is like four years into it. So it's a, it's a little bit delayed. And she, she took it pretty anticlimactically. Just like, okay, yeah. cool. Like, you know, she loved Ellen. And all of a sudden she <laughs> felt like she was a part of a special group. She really thought that like, oh my God. Like, I swear to God, she just felt like her social capital had gone up because now she can talk about how she has a queer daughter and like, look how cool I am because I have a queer daughter. I swear, I swear to you. So it, hilarious. it wasn't anything that was going like, it was all like, Ooh, this is good timing. This feels like something I need to champion. Right. All right. Quick. All right. I think the hardest part was coming out to myself more than it was coming out to anyone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did you figure that out? Oh, pretty much like everything else in life, which is I, you know, I don't do anything half-ass. It's either not at all or 150%. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so when did you know you were like attracted to women? I don't even think it's about being attracted to women. I think it's actually just being, um, queer. And I think if there is a label for it, it would probably be more bisexual than it would be um, attracted to a specific gender because okay. my earliest memories of sexuality, like before that would be a label or anything. Um, I was super attracted to both boys and girls who were androgynous, like sent from a wee tot. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, there was a formative experience where my mom shut that down. And so while I didn't understand it like intellectually I there was a felt sense about it and I was also a very late bloomer sexually and then interestingly enough like in college I never had any type of um I was all about the boys I had no there was no exploration or curiosity but one thing that was a thread throughout is that I always had a deep fascination with gay people I think for the reason that I was just so drawn to their courageousness and authenticity to be different, despite there being so many cultural pressures not to be. Crazy lately, I keep pushing through. Sometimes I get lazy and keep copying attitude, but I always. Now that she's discovered her place and her people, how does she look back on her birthplace and what she endured in childhood? I don't look at it. Either way, I, I look at it kind of a little bit of both. I know for a million percent fact that had I grown up biracial in the Bay Area, I would be a much less liked human being. <laughs> Why? <laughs> had I grown up feeling, I think, like more secure and like fond over and treated as like special, like a special little snowflake. Uh-huh. I think I would have been a raging bitch. I think I would have I would have felt my privilege and acted on my pri- and acted out on that. Yeah. Without a shadow of a doubt. With <laughs> out a shadow of a doubt. You needed to have your ego like kind of I basically <laughs> needed to die a few deaths. Um <laughs> so so it wasn't easy. It was very hard. It was very dark. It was very lonely. Most of my childhood memories through even graduating college are laced with sadness. Like just they're sad punctuated with 
beautiful memories of um, being outdoors, of different experiences. So it was like a crazy juxtaposition of really difficult trauma punctuated by, by, by moments of joy and, um, and lightheartedness. And so it's hard, you can't throw all of it away either way. Cause then if you throw out the bad, you got to throw out the good. Um, but I do know that it has defined me as a human being tenfold. I don't, yeah. I don't believe I'd be able to, I know I wouldn't be able to be the person that can touch people the way I do had I not suffered through my own traumas. Um, right that really stripped me of any ego in that way. I've got the other ego, but not that kind of ego, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. that kind. And it's just because um, of that. So, and then I, I was made to feel a lot of shame growing up. And I think that's part because of my, um, my mother's Catholic upbringing. <laughs> Cause that's like the name of the game, I guess, if you're Catholic, we, I didn't grow up Catholic, but you know, the residual uh, effects of her shame and then just being so, shamed because I was different was interesting as it showed up in like me trying to figure out my identity, who I was feeling shameful about being half black, hating that, hating my dad for making me half black, you know, hating being hated my last name. I hated that I was from West Virginia, like one of the most impoverished, pathetic States in the U S and over the years have shed that being replaced with a deep sense of pride like the healthy kind of pride and deep like humbleness because of the gifts that it has given me as a human. And I think the latest thing to come online has been being, being proud of being from West Virginia. I made this connection recently, like, so growing up West Virginia, and even today, even though there was a brief period, they changed it. The state's tagline was wild and wonderful, mm -hmm. wild and wonderful West Virginia. And <laughs> As I get older, I realize that like that is in my DNA. I do feel a bit wild and I do feel <laughs> a bit wonderful. And I do think it's the special sauce in most West Virginians. Like there's different ratios. Some are a lot wild, <laughs> a little less wonderful. <laughs> Some are a little wonderful and a little less wild. But like we have that in our mix and it's in the stories we tell people like growing up, you were always this close. And by that close, I mean like within a hair of discovering Bigfoot, witches, fairies, elves, like there was always something magical that you were just about to discover. Like it was woven into the stories that we would tell. Um, there was always some, there was always a haunted house in every neighborhood. There was always something fantastical happening. So yeah, I'm very proud to now be from West Virginia. Sometimes I get lazy and can cop an attitude, but I always keep it moving. God won't even let me choose, let alone let me lose. Being from West Virginia made M the wild and wonderful independent diva she is today. One thing she used to hate and feel shame about is her last name, Valentine. But when I think of that friend who always made me feel included in an unfriendly space, I couldn't imagine her as anything other than M. Valentine. This track is Cool Kids by Billy Early.